Nice to see you. My name's Ben. Lots of new faces this morning. Good to have you with us. Along with my wife and now we lead the church that meets here at St. Peter's. We missed you last week. I was away on what's called the Life Course Weekend Away. Uh, we do a course here that is for people who don't know what they think about Christianity, wouldn't consider themselves Christians, wouldn't consider themselves um, as believers in Jesus and want a context in which they can explore the bigger questions of life, but also start to investigate some of the key claims of Christianity. And after week six, we take people away for a weekend to uh, Eastbourne on the South Coast. And we used to take them to a really grotty, horrible hotel. And it was like the running joke of the whole course that we're going to take you to this weird hotel. We found a slightly better hotel this time, which I found quite disappointing because it was vaguely respectable. But anyway, they all came. And I'm always interested that you've got a bunch of people on this course who you didn't know in week one. Um, and then by week six, you're taking them on a weekend away. And the subject of the weekend away is how can I experience God? And I talk about the Holy Spirit um, for a couple of sessions. And then there's an hour in the weekend schedule, um, which is simply for an experience of God. And so we get a bunch of non-Christians, people not used to church, standing up. We clear all the chairs. They stand in the middle of this basement at a hotel in Eastbourne. And every time I'm thinking, what must they be thinking about this? Imagine if they told their friends back home that they were doing this this weekend. They're standing here with their eyes closed, their arms out. And we simply simply invite the Holy Spirit to come and do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to come and do. And again and again, I've been doing these weekends for years and years. You see people with zero context of being prayed for in this way, zero context of an experience of the Holy Spirit, showing all the usual signs of experience His power and His love and His presence for them. And there were just some beautiful testimonies that came out of that weekend. And we've got a couple of baptisms off the back of it, which would be really fun. So we're going to do the baptisms here. People have just come to faith and we'll do it in the morning service. We've got that to look forward to. But one thing that I would never do with a brand new Christian straight off the back of a life course is say, great, you've understood who Jesus is. He's the son of God. You've seen and had a little look at the evidence of the resurrection and you're convinced beyond reasonable doubt of the evidence. And you've started to understand what it is and what it means that Jesus died on the cross for all the stuff that gets in between you and God and therefore destroys the power of it so you can have this beautiful relationship with God and then you've had an experience of the Holy Spirit on the weekend and you started to re realise that this isn't just our intellectual minds that are engaged in our faith but our heart is engaged as well and we can connect relationally with God now the first thing you need to do guys is you need to pick up the book of James and we'll go through it verse by verse and then you'll have it all sorted I don't know if you know this, but Luther um, said that the book of James shouldn't even be in the Bible. He calls it the epistle of straw, which basically means you should burn it and we shouldn't be looking at it. So why are we looking at the book of James in the morning sessions? I hope you haven't found it too judgmental or like it's kind of heaping on burden upon burden of stuff that you need to do because if your faith is real and this is what James is all about if your faith is real then you're going to start to put it into action we've called this series a little less conversation a little more action because the idea is that as you look at the book of James James says faith without works is dead it's all very well saying you have faith, but unless you see it expressed in your day-to-day -day actions, then it doesn't really mean much. And that is the last thing that we want to be telling new Christians, because really, for a new Christian to be able to thrive in their relationship with God, we need to teach them how to connect with God as their father. 
God is a good parent who they can come to however they're feeling, who they can come to for safety, who they can come to for healing. And then out of that place of being loved, they can then start expressing their love for Jesus to people and start doing some of the stuff. So that's why here we like to talk about being with Jesus before we start to become like Jesus, before we start to do the stuff that he did. The crucial step is that we need to learn to be with Jesus first and foremost. And you could be forgiven for looking at James and saying, this feels like we've skipped far too many steps here and all you really care about is me being able to do the stuff. It feels, James, a little bit like you've missed that first step of being with God, of receiving from him, of receiving his love so that we can love other people. Well, this passage this morning, I hope, starts to square some of that circle, if you like. It starts to make sense of what it is that James is asking us to do. And more importantly than that, how we are supposed to live out the kind of lifestyle that James is asking us to live out here in his book. And the passage today is all about wisdom, as Katie just read. And wisdom is incredibly important in the book of James. Because if we are to start living out our faith in action, then we're going to need to exercise good judgment as to what to do in any given moment, aren't we? For example, if you take James 1, 27, if you want to sum up what faith in action looks like for James, it's this. He says, religion that God our Father accepts, and by religion, he doesn't mean rules-based Christianity. He means faith that's put into action. For uh, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, essentially care for the poor in front of you, do something about those in need in front of you, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So if you want to know what faith in practice looks like, you have to look out for the needs in front of you, but also you have to do something about personal holiness. Take personal holiness seriously. And so then later on, we come to this in chapter three, and James says, wisdom is incredibly important in order to be able to start to do the stuff of putting our faith into action. Why is that the case? Well, we know, for example, with caring for the poor, so caring for people, the needs of people right in front of us, if we were to go out into the streets right now, then the sheer amount of need in front of our eyes is overwhelming completely overwhelming. We'll be running around like a headless chicken trying to solve every single need in front of us. And what James is saying here is we need wisdom. We need to be able to exercise good judgment in order to know what to do and when. Because if we just launch ourselves at absolutely everything, we're going to get burnt out and we're going to be exhausted and we're going to find it very difficult in order to be able to live out the faith that we need to live out. Take, for example, Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine. It's absolutely horrific. And when we look at the news, the need is overwhelming, isn't it? The suffering that we're seeing on the news day in, day out is overwhelming. And when we think about what our response should be as Christians, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, isn't it? Like, where do we give our money? There's all these different places where we should be giving money. We need wisdom in order to be able to work out where to give our money. How should we be praying? We need wisdom in order to be able to work out how we should be praying for the situation in Ukraine. What should we be doing? Should we be taking refugees in? Should we be going to the Ukraine to help them fight? Should we be praying for peace? Should we be uh, lobbying the government so that we take it? What do we do? It's overwhelming. If you look at the need, it's really hard to work out where to start. And so James says in this moment, you need wisdom in order to to make good judgments in terms of putting your faith into works. The same can be said, if that's caring for the poor, the same can be said of James's instruction to take personal holiness seriously. 
I've noticed this again and again and again. People that become Christians on the life course very quickly get overwhelmed because what we, tr- what we essentially encourage them to do is read the life of Jesus. So go to the Gospels, read about Jesus. And your job as a Christian is to simply follow Jesus, to be with him and become like him. And as soon as they start reading about the life of Jesus, they quickly become overwhelmed because they realise how different their current lifestyle is to that of the person of Jesus. And as a result, it becomes too much. And what they need is wisdom. They need good judgment to know which parts of this personal holiness that God takes seriously, but which parts need to be worked on at each given moment as they strive to become more like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do we start? We need wisdom. But also it's not just about the overwhelming need and where we start. It's also about how we start or what we do in any given moment. Because with the best laid plans in the world, often with hindsight, we realise that what we thought was wisdom at the time turns out to be terrible. It turns out to be completely the wrong decision. And we get to the end of it and we say, we've completely messed up. In fact, we haven't put our faith into works here. Instead, we've screwed things up even more. So we need wisdom in order to be able to make good judgments in the moment. Why? Well, because it's complicated, isn't it? The world isn't quite as cut and dry as we think it might be. Life is complicated. It's hard to work out what is the good thing to do in any given moment. There's competing motives, aren't there? In our own heart and in the hearts of other people. And the right decisions, the good wisdom, wisdom sorry, isn't always obvious. So, we need wisdom in order to be able to do what James is asking to, to put our faith into action. So, how do we get wisdom? Well, let's answer first, what is wisdom? Because there's a difference here that James pulls out in the passage between what he calls earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And he says, if we're going to put our faith into practice, we need to learn what heavenly wisdom is like as opposed to earthly wisdom. So how do we tell the difference between the two types of wisdom? Well, James says, firstly, you tell the difference between these two types of wisdom by the fruit by the things, the fruit, the result that's produced as a result of the decision-making process. So what is the fruit of earthly wisdom? Verse 16, it says this. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. The result of earthly wisdom is disorder and every evil practice. What does he mean by disorder? He means chaos. He means strife. He means competing things against each other. He means that there are relationships that are broken down. He means that the relationship between us and God is broken down. He's talking about, in some context here, this word is used in the case of war. It feels like there is a war. We know that we have lived out earthly wisdom if it feels like things are chaotic as a result of our judgment. There's instability, there's confusion. But he also says it's evil practice. And this isn't just immoral practice. It is that included. But also in that word, he's talking about what what, um, the theologians interpret that word as worthless energy. So it's putting our time and energy, making judgments on the basis of things that have no heavenly value whatsoever. For example, making decisions purely on the basis of making money, for money's sake. That would be an example of evil practice. It's one of the things that James is talking about there. Now, what, do this, what does this look like? How could we see earthly wisdom at practice in the world around us? Obviously, the obvious one right now is Putin, right? Who is exercising earthly wisdom right now? It's Putin. How do we know that? It's because there is absolute chaos and discord and war as a result and also evil practice. 
It's quite an easy one to be able to look at and to point out. But don't let yourself off the hook by saying, well, thank goodness I'm not exercising any of that kind of earthly wisdom. I must be okay. I must be exercising heavenly wisdom. Because when you delve down a little bit deeper, you can start to realize that earthly wisdom is incredibly easy to fall into. Let's take the example of some of the James categories. So looking out for the poor, like doing something about the need in front of us. Take, for example, a charity. On the surface, a charity seems to be exercising good wisdom. Why? Because it's looking out for the poor. But what about a charity where the CEO is given a six-figure sum in order to be able to actually do the work that they feel called to do? I would say that would be exercising earthly wisdom. Take holiness, for example. So look out for the poor, take holiness seriously, this is what James is saying. What is the result of earthly wisdom lived out in holiness? It's religion. It's religious practice. It's saying, and this is, this is quite prevalent in the church today, saying if you want to be closer to God, if you want to see a move of God, if you want to see the spirit move around, then you need to take holiness seriously. You need to pursue holiness. In other words, what, he's, what we're saying there is if we can just climb the ladder of morality towards God, then we'll be closer to him. And that is dangerous. It's dangerous partly because it's the opposite of what the gospel is, but it's also dangerous because what happens as we're on the ladder is there's always someone above us doing better than us and we feel completely devalued and worthless. But worse than that, there's always someone lower down on the ladder. And in our hearts, we look at them, it creates this slippery slope in the heart and we say and we take pity on them and say, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And so religion is created as a result. And that's how you get division. That's how you get chaos. That how, that's how wars are, uh, happen in the name of different religions. It's because of that, the slippery slope in the heart that says, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm higher up the ladder than you. I'm on the right ladder towards God. And so therefore we need to deal with other people and put them to shame. So earthly wisdom. How do we know if we're exercising earthly wisdom? There's disorder in our life and there's evil practice. Okay, so none of us want that. So how do we exercise heavenly wisdom? What does heavenly wisdom look like? Well, again, James says you can judge heavenly wisdom by its fruit. So the fruit of heavenly wisdom, verse 18, is what he calls a harvest of righteousness, which essentially means it's a harvest, there's loads of it, a harvest of peace between people, human to human, but also a harvest of righteousness, peace between us and God. So if we're exercising heavenly wisdom, then it means that there is peace between people. It means that there is no confusion, there is no chaos, there's no division, there's no war, but instead there is peace. You feel at peace with other people. But also more than that, in the context of the gospel as a whole, it's a harvest of righteousness between us and God. It means there is peace between us and God. It means that that guilt and that shame and that condemnation that comes about as a result of exercising earthly wisdom is dealt with by Jesus on the cross and the power of it is destroyed in our life and therefore we feel at peace with God. So how do we know if we're exercising heavenly wisdom? Well, we have right relationship with other people as far as it is up to us, but we also have right relationship with God. We know that we are in the presence of God and we're in right relationship with him. We have a clear conscience. So we all want less chaos in our life, right? We all want more peace in our life. The key question here of the passage is how do we get the heavenly wisdom? 
How do we exercise good judgment so we see less division, we see less war, we see less chaos, but instead we see more peace and we see more righteousness and we have good relationships with other people and we feel like we're in the flow with God and we have a good relationship with him. How do we get heavenly wisdom? Well, James says in order to be able to work out where heavenly wisdom comes from, you have to dig a little bit deeper and you have to ask yourself, where, what is its source? Where does it come from? And if you read verse 14, it says this. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. If you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. Where does heavenly wisdom come from? Well, let's answer first where earthly wisdom comes from, because then we can tell the difference because we know where its source is. Earthly wisdom doesn't come from external sources. It's not, this is the lie we often tell ourselves. I was forced into doing that thing that has caused chaos or war or enmity or division or evil practice because of the practices of other people around me. Or because of the structures in which I live meant that I was actually forced into making those kind of earthly decision-making processes. That is a lie. What James is saying here is you you are creating earthly wisdom. You are following earthly wisdom because of what lies in your heart. You need to deal with what's in your heart. What's in your heart, James says, if you're following earthly wisdom, it's bitter envy and it's selfish ambition. It's comparison with other people and it's putting yourself first in every single relationship and in your decision-making with God. It comes from the heart. Take, for example, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about what a life lived in him looks like, what a godly life looks like. And whereas before uh, they had the Ten Commandments, do not murder, don't commit adultery, all those other things, Jesus ratchets up the bar in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, it's not even that the practices of these show bad judgment, show earthly judgment, it's what's going in your heart, on in your heart that leads to those practices. So he says murder doesn't just happen from nowhere, Murder happens from furious thoughts in our hearts. Likewise of adultery. He says adultery doesn't just happen. Instead, it comes from lustful thoughts in your heart. Jesus is upping the ante in the Sermon on the Mount. And the point that James is making here and that Jesus makes on the Sermon on the Mount is the difference between earthly wisdom, decision-making, and heavenly wisdom, heavenly decision-making, is a matter of the heart. If you want to know where heavenly wisdom comes from, you need to get rid of earthly wisdom and you need to deal with the problem of the heart. So what do we need to do? How do we deal with the problem of the heart? Well, James says right at the beginning of our passage, who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13, he says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. How do we deal with the problem of the heart? It's the gospel. It's the humility of the gospel. It's being able to come to Jesus and say, in my own strength, in my own decision-making, in my own heart, I don't trust myself in order to be able to make good judgments, in order to be able to divert from earthly wisdom, vain conceit, selfish ambition. Instead, God, I need you to make my heart new and clean so that I can pursue heavenly 
wisdom. It's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So often churches read the Sermon on the Mount and say, great, if we could all just be a little bit more like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, then we'll be golden. We'll be practicing earthly, heavenly wisdom and we'll be having a good time. There'll be no strife, there'll be no chaos, there'll be no wars, there'll be peace and there'll be a harvest of righteousness. The problem with the Sermon on the Mount is, do you know how Jesus ends it? He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Does anyone here think that they are perfect? We've probably all lived a little bit too much of life in order to be able to say that. What is Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is setting us up for what he is about to do on the cross. Now this is key to the book of James because if you read the book of James without the gospel at the centre of it, you might think that you have to strive and you have to work hard and you have to earn your salvation, your acceptance, your righteousness with him. But in the same way that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that we need to be perfect, what he's essentially saying there is without God, it is impossible. It's impossible to be able to live this out. It's impossible to be able to live heavenly wisdom out. Instead, we need to come to Jesus who lived the life that we should have lived, perfect in every way. In him, there was no selfish ambition. There was no vain conceit. Nothing that he did was for the benefit of himself. Instead, he lived a life of a suffering servant and he died upon the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took upon all of our selfish attempts to live life in our own strength and he destroyed the power of it. And for those that come to him, we then have this opportunity to turn away from our previous attempts and exercising earthly wisdom and instead to follow in the way of Jesus. So how do we practice heavenly wisdom? Where do we get heavenly wisdom? Well, the key is in the name heaven. And he says it, James, that it comes down from heaven. We don't look from it for it from within. We ask God to fill us from on high. Psalm 139 is brilliant because James is talking about humility there, isn't he? So in order to have heavenly wisdom, we need to exercise humility. What does humility look like? It means coming to Jesus and saying, in my own strength, in my own heart, I'm unable to do this because I constantly make decisions again and again and again in my own interest. So Jesus, I come to you and I ask for your forgiveness. I turn my back on living my life like that and I choose instead to follow you. And now, will you come and search my heart so that I can repent in the way? But way more than that, will you fill me with your spirit? Will you create in me a new heart? There's this beautiful um, Ezekiel passage where it's essentially, this is in Old Covenant, so this is pre-Jesus, but it's pointing to Jesus. If you read the Old Testament, everything in there is pointing to what Jesus is going to do on the cross and in his resurrection and in sending the Spirit. And Ezekiel says this beautiful promise here. He says uh, that he, the Lord says, I am going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. What happens when we turn to Jesus and we exercise humility, we ask for his forgiveness and we choose instead to follow him. We ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In us then is created a new heart and a new spirit. And it's from heaven. Heavenly wisdom comes down and we're created with a new heart so that we can be who we're called to be, so that we can start to live out the life that we're called to live. Surely, surely, surely this takes the pressure off. Surely this means that we can look at the stuff in our life that looks like earthly wisdom and isn't heavenly on any basis at all. And it, it enables us to be able to face the reality of it. 
It enables us to be able to take the power of it and to come to Jesus instead and receive his forgiveness. When we come to Jesus on the cross, it's like he's saying to just give me it. Just give me all of these attempts to do life in your own strength and I'll take them from you. And instead, I'm going to put in you a brand new heart. I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can live out life and the life that you are called to live. What does this look like in wisdom? Well, here's a great passage on wisdom. And Tom, if we get it on the screen, it's 1 Corinthians 2. And then I want to pray. It says this about wisdom. I'll read it and it'll come up at some point. So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 says this. Verse 6, sorry. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, judgment, heavenly wisdom, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Him, but we have the mind of Christ. How do we get heavenly wisdom? We ask for more of his spirit. We receive the spirit of the living God. Can we please, 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 and this has come back to me after this last life weekend, can we please stop trying to do this without the Holy Spirit? We have to just stop. We can get more done in 15 minutes with the power of the Holy Spirit behind us than we can spend years and years doing in our own strength and our own human wisdom. I feel like God's been speaking to me this last week about the need for us to open ourselves more to the Holy Spirit. And I think I've caught myself in this trap as much as anybody else. And I think books like the, the book of James, they're brilliant, but sometimes we can mistake them for simply rules that we have to live by in order to be able to see more of the kingdom of God. But if you want to see more of the kingdom of God, we need to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. It feels a little bit like this church, but I know other churches as well are thirsty for more of the Holy Spirit. And we don't even know it sometimes. I heard this brilliant, um, well, I read actually an article about water and I've mentioned it before and whenever I mention it, all anyone ever thinks about is that they need to drink more water. So please don't think that when I tell you this, but here's the facts that it talks about in this article. None of us here drink enough water. You're supposed to drink two liters or something. That's eight glasses, right? Apparently only 1% of us in this room right now drink enough water, okay? And here's the problem when you don't drink enough water. Your internal organs start to shut down. And you, your body starts to tell itself that there is enough water. 
So you think that you are drinking enough water by having coffee and tea and wine and beer. Let me tell you, you're not. Your organs have just shut themselves down and you're slowly dying inside, okay? But don't do anything about that. Forget about the water. Don't worry about the water. Let me just make the analogy in terms of the spirit. Too many of us in this room are trying to do the life of Jesus with the absence of the Holy Spirit and we're dying inside. We're dehydrated and we don't even know it. Can we just stop? Can we just stop doing it? Me included. Can we just stop? If you're not waking up every day, coming before God and saying, would you fill me with your living water? Then anything that God asks us to do is going to be impossible. The only way we're able to do it in his strength, in the power of his spirit, is if we receive freely from the gift. Jesus says, um, he, uh, John 7 he stands up at one of the festivals and it was a Jewish festival um, about the wilderness, remembering when uh, Israel went through the wilderness. It's probably pertinent for Lent if you think about that sort of thing. I try to ignore Church of England traditions but lots of people love it. Anyway, it's about Lent. Um, And Jesus stands up in front of them and says, anyone who is thirsty here, come to me and I will give you the water of life, living water that will flow from inside of you and become streams of living water by which he meant, and John says, he meant the coming of the spirit which they're later to receive when Jesus ascends into glory. We do not live in the time of the wilderness right now. We need to stop dehydrating ourselves, starving ourselves of the good stuff. We live this side of the ascension. Jesus ascended so that he could send his Holy Spirit on us in Acts 2 so that we could be filled to overflowing so that we are living hydrogen if that's the word, of water pouring out all around us that satisfies our soul. But too many of us are walking around dehydrated and our internal spiritual self is shutting down as a result and we're dying inside. And sometimes it just becomes too hard, doesn't it? And we give up. Or we say, well, we're just not going to be able to do it. Please, 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 if we do anything, learn to open yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, what, it's one of the things I love about the Life Weekend. You've got a bunch of people who have zero context for this, but they stand there like lemons in a basement in Eastbourne because they, they are desperate to experience God. And as you go on in Christian faith, so often you forget that the way it started is the way it continues on for us again and again and again. We keep coming back to the gospel. The gospel isn't just the ABC of faith and then we mature and move on to the rest of it. We keep coming back. It's the A to Z of everything. We come back in humility. We ask for his forgiveness and we ask him to fill us again with his Holy Spirit. Let's do it now. Shall we stand?